Well, listen, if you got a Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 38. We're going to kind of hover in that area today. And here's what we want to talk about today, how to be faithful to God in any situation. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? Don't you wish you could stand up with these young people today who are graduating and just say, I want to start over. And I want to be faithful to God from now on in any situation that I may find myself in. And we're going to get to that, how to be faithful in any situation. But, but first, I want to remind you kind of where we are in this sermon series. And then secondly, we want to dive into the deep end of the Bible study pool this morning. And then we'll come back around to talking about how can we be faithful to God in any situation. Okay, so this is where we are in this sermon series called No Average Joe. We're looking at the life of an Old Testament character by the name of Joseph. This isn't the New Testament Joseph, the father of, uh, earthly father of Jesus. This is the Old Testament Joseph here. And he gets more screen time in the book of Genesis than any other character, more than Adam, more than Noah, more than Abraham. And if you were here three weeks ago, I brought some flannel graph today. How many church people in the room grew up on flannel graph, all right? Well, this is fancy flannel graph, all right? So I brought some flannel graph in here today to remind you of this dysfunctional family that Joseph is surrounded by. He's got one dad, and that dad has two wives. There's four moms, and there's a whole bunch of children. And they're a bunch of con people, really, a bunch of manipulators, a bunch of connivers, a bunch of liars, bunch of cheaters, oftentimes violent, oftentimes sexually promiscuous. And two weeks ago, we saw Joseph, the favored son of Jacob. We saw him have these dreams, right, where he saw his family bowing down to him. And maybe somewhat recklessly, he shared that he had had those dreams uh, about his family. He shared that with his family. And his brothers turned on him, and they threw him in a pit. They sold him as a slave for some pieces of silver, and then they led their father to believe that a wild animal had mauled Joseph and that he had not survived the attack. So the brothers deceive, and the father Jacob grieves, and Joseph lands in Egypt as a slave. Now that gets us to Genesis chapter 38. That's where we are now. Put your goggles on in your swim hat because we want to dive off into the deep end of the Bible study pool as we get to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38 is a parenthetical chapter to the story of Joseph. Suddenly there's this kind of unusual break in the flow of the story and the spotlight turns from Genesis 38 from Joseph to one of his brothers by the name of Judah. Now, I want to explain why Judah gets all this screen time in chapter 38 and not any of the other brothers. Back in Genesis 3, right, sin came into the world. But God stepped into the garden. Remember the timeline I do with the children? God stepped into the garden and he made a promise. He promised to send a savior, right? And then he reaffirmed that promise nine chapters later in Genesis with a man by the name of Abraham. He promised Abraham three things, lots of children, lots of land, and a blessing would come through his family to the nations of the earth. That blessing is none other than Jesus. That blessing is none other than the Messiah. And then by a miraculous birth, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, at a very old age, they had a son by the name of 
Isaac. And Isaac had a son by the name of Jacob. And Jacob, this is his family. He has all of these sons. Now, you might think that God is keeping his promise to bring the Messiah by giving uh, his bloodline to the oldest in Jacob's family. But you would be wrong. You may be thinking, well, the Messiah, Jesus, he must be coming through Joseph. Well, you're also wrong if that's what you're thinking. It's actually going to be that fourth guy there on the bottom. The promised Messiah that was promised to Adam and Eve, that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, is going to come through Judah, the fourth son born to this wife named Leah. That's not even the wife that Jacob loved, if you remember the story. Now, in Genesis chapter 49, we're going to fast forward to the next to the last chapter in the book of Genesis. When we get to Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is old and he's about to die. But he's going to speak the word of God really sort of prophetically over all of his sons. And I want you to see what he says about the fourth son, Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the Bible says, the scepter, this is Jacob. You can imagine his hand is resting on the head of his son, Judah, as he says this. And he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. You say, well, who is Shiloh? Well, Shiloh means rest giver, rest giver. And so most people understand that this is a prophetic word from Jacob about Judah, that the Messiah is coming, the rest giver, Shiloh is coming through Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh, the rest giver comes and to him, the rest giver, the Messiah shall be the obedience of the peoples. Listen, this is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. He's not going to be a descendant of Joseph. He's going to be a descendant of Judah. This is why the Bible, and I love Revelation 5, 5, the Bible refers to Jesus sometimes as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of Judah. It's Jesus that's the Shiloh, the rest giver. He's the one that forever holds the scepter. He is the one that holds the ruler's staff. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is the rest giver to the nations. And one day, all the peoples of the earth are going to bow before him. That's why chapter 38, this parentheses in the story of Joseph, that's why it's focusing on Judah. This is important to see that. Now, you might be wondering, okay, so if the Messiah is coming through Judah, then why so much screen time given to Joseph? Why isn't all about Judah then? Well, well, this is why. Because the story of Jesus, the, the promise of the coming Messiah is woven all through the Old Testament. And it's woven in multiple layers, at least four layers that we're going to talk about today. One of the layers of the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament is through prophecy. 
You just saw an example of that when we read Genesis chapter 49. Today, I want to show you three other layers of the weaving of the promise of the Messiah through the Old Testament. We're going to see these three layers in chapter 38 and chapter 39 of Genesis today. Another layer where you see the promise of the Messiah, you see Jesus in the Old Testament, is every time in your Old Testament you see the word LORD in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the way our English translators translate the holy name for God, Yahweh. And when you get to the New Testament, John says Yahweh is Jesus, and Peter says Yahweh is Jesus, and Paul says Yahweh is Jesus, and Jesus says Yahweh is Jesus. And 6,500 times in the Old Testament, you bump into, in your English Bible, the word LORD in all caps. It's all about Jesus. So that's the second layer of the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament. You tracking with me today? All right, so prophecy is one layer. We saw that in Genesis 49. The word LORD in all caps, Yahweh, is another layer that we see that. Here's the third layer that we see the Messiah being woven throughout the Old Testament, and and that's through the tracing of the Messiah's bloodline through the Old Testament, like we just read about in uh, chapter 38 with Judah here. That's why the focus is on him. And here's the thing, when you're reading the Old Testament and you get into the bloodline of Jesus, you're going to see this real clearly. They're not the best of the best. The the ancestors of Jesus are not pristine, perfect, even proper people most of the time. In fact, sometimes it seems like they are the worst of people. Let me just kind of summarize the story of Judah in chapter 38. Three weeks ago, I touched on it, but I'll unpack that a little bit more now. Remember, Jesus is coming from Judah. Well, here's how that story happens. Judah has a son. And his son marries a woman by the name of Tamar. And before they have any children together, the, the, the husband dies. Now, for a woman to not have any children... And to be widowed in that society, that that basically meant she's going to live in a cardboard box under a bridge somewhere, right? And so the provision for that is then the next brother in line could could have a relationship, physical relationship with this woman so that she might conceive of a child and so that the line of his brother could continue. So she would be provided for in that way. And so brother number two, Judah tells him, hey, you go and you take care of that and make sure, you know, you have a baby with this lady so she can have a child and be provided for one day. And so brother number two, he goes and he commits that act with Tamar, but he takes action to ensure that he's not going to impregnate her. That makes God furious. In fact, the Bible says that God struck the man dead because of that selfish act that he committed. Now, Judah's got a third son, but he's too young to get married. And so Judah tells Tamar, here's what you're going to do. Go stay with your dad. And when my third son gets old enough, I'll send him to you and you can have a child by him. Well, kind of out of sight, out of mind, I guess, Judah seems to sort of have forgotten about Tamar. And Tamar realizes that now she's forgotten. She's been abandoned. She's not going to have any children. In the meantime, Judah's wife passes away. And he goes through a period of time of grieving. Then after that's passed, he and a friend go on a business trip. And and the business trip is going to land them in the same place where Tamar lives. Well, Tamar hears, hey, Judah is coming to town. And so Tamar says, well, that scoundrel is not going to give me his son 
to give me any children. So I'm going to make sure that I have a child in the bloodline of my husband. And so she dresses up, disguises herself to look like a harlot. And she positions herself in the path of Judah. And when he sees her, he is enticed by her and he goes over to solicit her. And she says, well, what are you going to give me for this? And he says, I'll give you a goat. (laughs) True story, right? And so she says, okay, well, I'll agree to a goat, but here's what's got to happen. I got to have a down payment. Because he says, when I get home, I'll send you the goat. So she says, well, for now then, I need, I need a ring. I need your ring, and I need your belt, and I need your staff. And then I'll give those things back to you when you pay up with the goat. So, so that's what happens. Well, Judah finally goes back home, and he takes the goat to the UPS store. <laughs> and he pays the postage to ship the goat back to that town. But the UPS driver can't find a harlot in the town. Starts to ask around. Nobody knows of a harlot in the town. And so they report that back to Judah. And Judah says, well, listen, I obviously don't want to draw any more attention to myself about all this. So I'm just going to let it go. I'll keep the goat and the harlot can keep the ring and the belt and the staff. Well, about three months later, word gets back to Judah. Hey, Judah, Tamar's pregnant. She's been acting like a harlot, and Judah's livid, right? And so he goes back to that town, and he says, hey, bring her out. We're going to burn her to death, which means not only will she die, but the baby she's carrying will also die. Judah wants to be the judge and the jury, right? But then the tables flip. Tamar comes out, and she says, hey, Judah, yeah, it's true, I'm pregnant, And it's true, I've been acting like a harlot. And the father of the child is the person who owns this ring and this belt and this staff. And all of a sudden, it turned into like one of those daytime shows like Jerry Springer, right? (laughs) Like this was the paternity test and Judah's the dad. And his jaw just hits the ground and he says, here I was, I thought you were this vile sinner, but I'm I'm an even worse sinner than you are. And as it turns out, she has not only one baby in the womb, she has two. And one of those little boys will go on to be named Perez. His name shows up, by the way, in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, watch this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez fathered Hezron and on and on until we get to Jesus. This is why that parenthetical chapter 38 is in the book of Genesis. Because that's another layer of the promised Messiah, Jesus, that's going to come. That's the bloodline of Jesus that we get to trace to the Old Testament. And Jesus' ancestors, they're a sordid bunch. But here's why it's important that you know that today. And I think you'll be glad to know this today. Jesus came into this world to identify with sinners. He came to sinners. He came from sinners. 
and he came for sinners. Not only that sinners might be saved, but here's more good news, but that sinners might have a sympathetic high priest who understands our weaknesses because he, like us, was tempted and tried in every way, yet remained without sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So as we trace this layer of the bloodline of Jesus, we're encouraged, right? Because he came for people like us. He came to identify with sinners. He came to substitute himself on the cross for sinners, to rescue sinners from sin and death and the grave. So we have these beautiful layerings in the Old Testament that point us to Jesus, prophecy. Lord, Yahweh, in all caps, the bloodline of Jesus. And here's the fourth one. The fourth one is called types. Types. A type, a type of Christ is something or someone that we see in the Old Testament that paints a picture for us of what Jesus is like to help us better understand who he is and what he's about In chapter 38 and 39 of Genesis, you get three of the layers, right? You get Lord in all caps, Yahweh. You get the tracing of the bloodline through Judah. And now in chapter 39, this is where we're going to camp out for the moments we have left. You get the story of Joseph again. And Joseph is a type of Jesus. Joseph doesn't know that. He's just living living in real time. But through Joseph... Through his life, God is painting a portrait of what Jesus the Messiah is like. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we saw that. Do you remember that? When we were in Genesis chapter 37, we talked about there's a greater story within the story. We talked about how everything that was happening to Joseph is is pointing us to Jesus. We talked about how like Jesus, Joseph was loved by his father. Like Jesus, Joseph was rejected by his people. Like Jesus, Joseph was destined to reign. Like Jesus, Joseph was sent on a mission from his father. But the very ones he is sent to, they hate him. They conspire against him. They abuse him. They betray him. And then they think they've done away with him and they think they'll never have to see him again. We saw a type of Jesus, didn't we? All over Genesis chapter 37. And today we're going to see more of Jesus in this type found in Joseph in chapter 39. I said it then, I'll say it again. Too often we look at the story of Joseph or people like Joseph and we think it's all about Joseph. We think we're to follow his example. We think he's the hero of the story, but he's not the hero of the story. God's the hero of the story. The the, the, the focus isn't to stop on Joseph, it's to move on toward Jesus. If we only focus on Joseph, we miss the big picture. We miss the whole reason why God is weaving all this together like he is. It's all intended to point us to the real deal. And by the way, can I just pause for a minute and say, as you think about these layers of the Old Testament that point to Jesus, have you paused long enough just to consider there is no other book in the world like this book? How beautiful, how stunningly perfect 
and precise is this book. The real hero is Jesus. He's the only one who can save. So let's unpack chapter 39 of Genesis. And I think you're going to see Jesus again today in Genesis 39. And I think we're going to get to answer the question that I told you earlier. How can I be faithful to God in any situation? That's what I want to know. That's the way I want to live. And I think we're going to get an answer from God's word today, how we can do that. When we get to Genesis chapter 39, Joseph is, he's in his twenties. He's 200 miles from home. He lives in Egypt. Like is, Egypt is like the first week of June in Panama City, except every single day. What happens in Egypt stays in Egypt. It's that kind of place. And here's this young man named Joseph. He's got all kinds of opportunities to indulge. He's got zero accountability, and yet he remains faithful, and he remains steadfast to God. Let me show you. Number one, he was faithful when he was successful. He was faithful when he was successful. Look at verse 1. When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Potiphar is a guy that's pretty high up in society. He's one of the closest people to the Pharaoh, the president of Egypt, you might say. Potiphar is in the upper, upper class of Egypt. He's somebody of great importance, and that's where Joseph is now. And verse 2 says, watch this. And you may want to underline this part of verse 2. The Lord, you see that? There's all caps again. There's one of those layers. The Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized, here it is again, the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything that he did. Potiphar clearly realized this guy's different. This is no average Joe. This guy's unique. This guy's extraordinary. He stood out in a supernatural way. And the Bible tells us, it just told us that Potiphar realized the secret sauce in Joseph's life is that the Lord was with him. God was with him. I wonder this morning, do your employers see that in you? Do your employers know that Jesus is with you? Do your teachers watch you and they know that's no average Joe, the Lord's with them? Does your coach know the Lord's with you? Do the people that you do business with, you might have just walked out of a life group. Is it even obvious in there that people know that the Lord's with you? Joseph was successful in all that he did because God was with him. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that he sat around twilling his thumbs. Oh, the Lord's got it. It doesn't mean that he wasn't diligent. It doesn't mean that he didn't work. It doesn't mean any of that. Thomas Edison said one time, opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and it looks like work. Hey, Joseph worked. I think he worked hard and he worked faithful and he worked diligently and he worked with excellence and God was faithful to that. And God blessed Joseph and Potiphar noticed that. Look at verse four. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. 
He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. That's some more trust in this guy, right? With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. That's the way every employer ought to feel about a child of God that's under their uh, supervision in the workplace. He didn't have to worry about a thing. Joseph has risen from a pit to a slave to now to a place where he is wildly successful. You know, a lot of people can handle adversity well, but not everybody can handle success. Joseph is blessed with a whole lot of success, and he remains faithful. I want to tell you today, that reminds me of Jesus. When he walked in this world, he was incredibly successful in his earthly ministry. Had a tremendous following, didn't he? So much so that there were moments in his earthly ministry that the people said, hey, we want to make you king, Bubba. And people began to rally around him to make him king. And you know what Jesus did every time? He drew away. He got alone to be with his father, to stay focused on the mission, to stay, to stay fervent in prayer. He remained faithful even in the face of success. And Joseph points to Jesus. Not only was Joseph faithful when he was successful, but Joseph was faithful when he was seduced. At the end of verse 6, it says that Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. That, that probably is put there just to let us know that in a place like Egypt, Joseph probably could have just about picked out whatever lady friend he wanted. And verse 7 says, And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be such a great sin against God. This woman is throwing herself at Joseph seducing him with all she's got, but yet Joseph remains faithful. He remains faithful because he wants to honor Potiphar, but even more importantly, he remains faithful because he wants to honor God. Listen, church, young people, all of us, old people, here's the thing about temptation. It ain't going nowhere. It's not going away. Somebody said, if you're, you want to get rid of temptation, just give in to it. But other than that, it's not going anywhere. Verse 10 says, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way as much as possible. Smart move. He stayed out of her way as much as he could. Get out of temptation's way. Listen, you today. Get out of temptation's way. Mr. Miyagi told Daniel LaRusso in Karate Kid, best defense, no be there, right? 
Just get out of the way. Don't get into the ring with temptation. What's tempting you? Avoid it like the plague. Jesus speaking with hyperbole said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, gouge it out. He didn't literally mean to do those things. He's making the point, though, that we have got to be aggressive in the fight against sin in our life because sin is going to be aggressive toward us. Amen? Have you noticed that? Sin doesn't come over to your house with a box of Legos. It's coming with the heat. It's coming with all it's got, and you got to be aggressive is what Jesus means by that. John Owen, the old Puritan, said, be killing sin or sin be killing you. It's true. Joseph tried to avoid her and the temptation as best as he could. Then this happened, verse 11. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. I kind of think she set this up, don't you? I kind of think like she told everybody, hey, y'all go home early. She told everybody but Joseph. So nobody's there. And she came and she grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Listen, running from sin, especially sexual sin, isn't cowardly. That's wise. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18, the Bible says, run, run from sexual sin. Joseph was faithful when he was successful and he was faithful when he was seduced. Just like Jesus, just like Jesus. Satan came at Jesus, did he not? In the wilderness, seducing Jesus to lure his heart from the Father, to seduce his heart away from the mission, to die for our sin. Three times we're told there in the wilderness that Satan tried to seduce Jesus, and yet Jesus remained faithful in the face of seduction. And I don't think that was the only times Jesus ever faced those temptations. I'm sure he did many other times, but he was faithful. Joseph was faithful when he was successful. He was faithful when he was seduced. He was faithful, number three, when he was slandered. He was faithful when he was slandered. Look at verse 13. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants, and soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband. Now, watch this. Somehow Potiphar's to blame for all this. My husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home, and then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you've brought into our house, tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Now, Mrs. Potiphar is a piece of work, ain't she? She's completely fabricating this whole story because apparently she's angry that Joseph isn't fulfilling her desires. And apparently she's got some kind of anger issues toward old Potiphar as well. She's blaming him for what's happened. And here's Joseph. His character is being slandered. 
He's not done what he's being accused of. In fact, quite the opposite of that. And the Bible says here that, or it implies here that he didn't say anything. He just remained faithful. He stayed quiet. He didn't try to defend himself. He just stayed silent. Does that remind you of anybody? Jesus faced being slandered as well. They accused Jesus of all kinds of things that weren't true of Jesus. And the Bible says he didn't even open his mouth. Isaiah chapter 53, a prophetic word in that layering of the Messiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. You see the type of Jesus and Joseph? They were both faithful when successful, faithful when seduced, faithful when slandered, and forth. Faithful when shackled. When shackled. Verse 19 says, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Verse 21, but the Lord. But the Lord. If you're a child of God today, let me tell you, you always got that phrase in your life, but the Lord. But the Lord. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. Faithful love. Did you get that? It wasn't that Joseph was showing God faithful love. God was showing Joseph faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison, the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. Watch, the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. You know, Joseph could have gotten bitter. Joseph could have thrown a pity party. He could have said, my whole life I try to do the right thing and what do I get from it? I get tossed in a pit. I get sold as a slave. I get framed. I go to prison. It's not worth it. He could have done that, but he didn't. He stayed faithful. Even in shackles, he stayed faithful. And God once again elevated him to a place of influence, to a place of leadership. Joseph's now running the prison from the inside. Now I ask you, wouldn't you like to be faithful to God? no matter the situation? Wouldn't you like to be faithful to God no matter the circumstances that you may find yourself in? How do you do that? How did Joseph stay faithful? I'll tell you. He had help. Joseph was faithful not because of his willpower, Joseph was faithful not because somebody had taught him lessons on how to deal with success and seduction and slanderings. There wasn't a course he took on that. He didn't master that. He was faithful not because he was perfect. He was faithful because he had the power and the presence of God with him. God was with him. 
Four times in the story in chapter 39, four times. When God says something three times, he's getting our attention. Four times, he's putting the cherry on top. Four times in Genesis 39, the Bible says God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. God was with him. You want to know how he was faithful in any situation? It's because God was with him. Joseph's not the hero of the story. God's the hero of the story. It's God. It's Jesus who was with him at every turn. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. He wants us to know that it's Christ in us that makes all the difference. Philippians 4.11, Paul says, not that I was ever in need, for I've learned, by the way, he's writing this from a prison himself. For I've learned how to be content with whatever I have or don't have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Any situation, Paul says, because I can do everything through Christ. Through Christ. Through Christ. I can be faithful in any situation is what Paul says. I can be faithful in any situation because of Christ. Christ in me. How can you be faithful in all circumstances? You can't. But Jesus can. He'll be faithful to you, and he'll be faithful through you if you'll ask him. If you'll yield, if you'll surrender, if you'll simply begin to face every situation, begin to face every circumstance with this mentality, not I, but Christ. Christ in me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ to my right, Christ to my left, Christ when I sit, Christ when I rise, Christ when I sleep, Christ when I work, Christ when I eat, Christ wherever I go, not I but Christ. Listen, if you're a child of God today, brace yourself. I'm about to tell you something. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, it's not you, it's Jesus in you. The spirit of the Lion of Judah is in you. The only one who's worthy to break the seals of those scrolls in Revelation chapter 5, he's not just seated in heaven waiting to break those seals. He is seated on the throne of his children's hearts. The Lion of Judah is in you. Here's what that means. You, you kind of get excited because I'm excited, but here's what that means. You don't have an excuse for your sin. We don't have an excuse for our sin because the line of Judah's in us. We don't have an excuse. We can't blame somebody else. We can't make up a story about it. We can't even say, well, the devil made me do it. Here's why we can't say the devil made me do it, because the lion of Judah is in me, and greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. We got some puny excuses, and we can't, as children of God, make excuses for our sin. Every time we sin, Christians, we're simply saying yes to the lies and no to the lion. You with me? Every time we sin, we're simply saying yes to the lies and no to the lion of Judah. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Watch. But God is faithful. How can you be faithful in every situation? You can't, but God is. And God will be. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape. That's a definite article, the. The way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What is the way of escape? It's the lion. It's the lion of Judah. He's the way of escape. God's children always have a way, the way in any situation to be faithful. The way is not your determination. The way is not your ability to duck and dodge and stay strong. The way of escape every single time is through the Lion of Judah, through Jesus himself. Say no today to the lie. And say yes today to the lion. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, right now today, somebody in this room, you're in a pit. And you're tempted to despair. You're tempted to not deal well with that situation. Entrust that pit today to Jesus. Maybe today you're facing temptation. Maybe it's sexual in nature. Give that to Jesus and you stay the heck away from it. You can't handle it. Don't even entertain thoughts that you can handle it. Tie up your shoes good and tight and take off running today. Maybe you're here today and you're being slandered. Maybe somebody's intentionally trying to inflict pain on you or on people you love. And it would be easy today to seethe with anger and to thump somebody's head. But why don't you give it today to the lion? Unleash the lion on it. Ask him to live through you. Maybe today you're in shackles, not necessarily physical, but you find yourself today in some place that seems like there's no way out, that hope is fading. And today you're tempted to get angry at God about it. It'd be easy to despair today. It'd be easy to throw in the towel and quit on everything. Maybe somebody in this room is even thinking today, I'm quitting on life. Joseph could have gotten to that place in prison, but he didn't. And he didn't because he knew that the Lord was with him. And I'm telling you, Christian, the Lord's with you. The lion, he's in you. Joseph's circumstances didn't define him, and yours don't either. Joseph's circumstances didn't take him down, and yours don't have to either. God is with you. Say yes to him today as Savior and Lord if you never have. And if you have, then say yes to the lion. Unleash him in you 
and through you for his glory. You don't have to fight that battle. Jesus is your Shiloh. He is your rest giver. The battle belongs to the Lord. Stand still. He will fight for you. The Lion of Judah. He is your rescue.